Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hart. And each week on the Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Fergus Connolly coming back on the show. Uh, he, if you haven't listened to the first episode we did on uh, Game Changer on episode 130, do check that out. Uh, to give a little bit of context for Fergus, he is Dr. Fergus Connolly, who is one of the world's foremost human thought leaders and influencers and has applied performance science with leading sports, military and business teams. So welcome back onto the show, Fergus. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Obviously, we've been trying to do this uh, for a number of months anyway, but obviously it takes probably uh, a world catastrophe for everybody to be probably being able to own tools and actually probably in a sense focus more on the things that they need to get done. So the pleasure is all mine. So what I wanted to talk about with you, Fergus, for this episode is obviously your second book, The 59 Lessons Working with the World's Greatest Coaches, Athletes and Special Forces. So obviously we we touched upon looking at the positives from a negative situation and looking at uh, in any darkness situation, there's always light, light at the end of the tunnel. From that book, what stands out the most in terms of like from an adversity standpoint, obviously from a special forces uh, perspective, people would probably assume obviously that is a life and death situation for some periods of time. But from a maybe a coach or an athlete perspective, what do you do when you get into these kind of moments of darkness? Well, you see, the funny thing is sometimes as athletes and coaches, we think, you know, um, it's all about winning. And if you've been successful and everybody has had some success at a certain period of time, but sometimes we forget that, you know, we lose more than we win and we have setbacks all the time. And people sometimes get into this, uh, sense that, Oh, you know, things are, uh, you know, I've never been in a situation like this before, but no, you have it. What, what's different about now is, yeah, a lot of people are in the same situation and a lot of people uh, have not had to overcome adversity or to overcome losses or setbacks. Um, athletes are actually probably more prepared for a situation like this than anybody else. You know, you've lost, you've lost a lot and, you know, you struggle, you're going to lose, you're going to have more bad days, you know that. And that's part of the strength of an athlete is the fact that they um, have that resilience and robustness developed. Um, Because one of the great things about any performer is that they have the courage to go out there and perform and deliver in front of people. And um, part of that risk is that you will lose or not play well or not perform well. And this is a setback for a lot of people, but it's not the end 
in fact, there's an end in sight um, to the downturn and, and relying on those qualities that um, that you've had to rely on so many times, I think, um, is the key here uh, um, in situations like this. And one of the other things that I think a lot of coaches and athletes sometimes forget in situations like this is that um, it's very easy to get caught up in a, in a herd mentality and to follow like, um, you know, normal uh, hysteria or public panic. But athletes and coaches have done their own thing. Like you've been courageous enough to go out on your own and, and to do these things. And, you know, when you reflect, when you take time and you reflect as an athlete and as a coach, you've had setbacks you are different. You've done things different. You've decided to go this route. You've had the courage to, to go this route. And you've also had the courage to overcome setbacks and stay at it. Well, those same qualities are what are going to get you through this. And uh, I think when coaches and athletes reflect on that for a moment and take the time to, they realize, you know what? I've got this. I'm going to get through this. Um, and I just need to uh, you know, rely on those same strengths and qualities. And, you know, uh, like, to be honest, somebody like you has had far more resilient qualities and ex- uh, expertise than many people, you know. So I think that's what people sometimes forget at times like this. You know, you've been in tough situations. You've gotten through this. You get through this as well. It just means digging deeper and realizing that um, those qualities that, you know, started you on this journey or what you're going to have to rely on now. I think you raise a good point there. And this is where I lose sight of it as well. And I'll be honest with the audience is, is you, you raise a good point in terms of I've faced a number of adversities, but I have this kind of tendency to, because it's either seen as something new or something different, you kind of fo- do follow the, the mass hysteria of following the herd because it's like, well, if everybody seems to be scared, worried, frustrated, apprehensive and anxious, should I not feel the same way? And I think, obviously, you you, you mentioned a good point there, Fergus, in terms of coaches and athletes have always stepped out of, uh, down the untrodden path, so to speak, because they've gone to do something more difficult than the major, mass, vast majority of the population want to do anyway. So I think in terms of, and this is a, probably a question to you as well, do you think it's because it's a perception of how we see this situation versus be it going down an, a road that's not been done before from a sporting sense is obviously a choice. So I'm in control of what I'm going to do. Ultimately, the adversity that that offense face along the way is out of my control. And that's probably where this is where the mindset is probably you need to do reflect in terms of, well, you're not totally in control of any situation anyway, but because of it being something new and you've got no historical data to fall back upon, do you think that's where obviously the mindset kind of shifts in terms of what it's a uncontrollable uncontrollable yeah so there are a few things Nikki. you know what i mean i'm not a 
psychology expert, I can really speak to, to, to me and to, to my experience. The way that I look at this is, look, one of, the, one of the mistakes we do make in sport is that, and just recognizing sport is a subset of life, the reason it's a subset is that there is wire around the fence, so to speak. Like, um, you know, no matter what you do in sport, it never becomes life or death. And if it ever does, then it's not sport. Like, I mean, somebody's um, being reckless. But so within sport, there's a certain safety. But the lessons that the role of sport is to teach young people lessons for life. The majority of people will never make money from sport. That's not his role. So to teach lessons that you continue in life. So just hardships, setbacks, and overcoming. One of the most important lessons that we sometimes forget in sport is that you're never truly in control. And sometimes we mistake. I've made this mistake many times. I've confused preparation for control. I've confused the fact that I've prepared, suffered, and gone through X, Y, and Z exceptionally well and at an exceptionally high level, and then winning and assuming that, I am in control of the outcome. You're never in control of the outcome. You are in control of the preparation. You're in control of everything that leads up to it. And then you do your best. And sometimes, and if you do it very well, you've increased the probability of success, but never are you truly in control. Now something like this happens and we think that we've lost control. No, you're never in control. You are only in control of how you react to things and how you prepare and how you act. And so that's the first realization that in life, Life is fleeting. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow as quickly as you could get some kind of illness. And um, the lessons from that are live every day, you know, to your fullest. Secondly, prepare and decrease the probability as best you can, but recognize that you're not ever truly in control. Those are two critical, um, two critically important lessons. But on the other hand, athletes are better prepared for this than anybody else in coaches because they thrive in situations where it's difficult. That's one of the reasons you got involved in sport. Difficult situations, jump towards them, um, get excited with the, the risk and not recklessness, but get excited about um, the opportunity that it presents itself. And so this is a serious situation and it's tragic, um, but there is always opportunity in the difficulty. And it's, you know, that's why... You know, there are a lot of Olympic athletes who had wonderful plans and who've had uh, setbacks. You've had you've a lot of Olympic athletes who were well on the way and thought that they were really well prepared. And now this is a, uh, it's not a setback because it's a change. It's not a setback in the sense that um, it will, um, that you alone are injured. Everybody's in the same boat. The key is how you adapt. Because there are some athletes who, whose preparation was not going well, and now they've been thrown a lifeline. There are other athletes who are preparing exceptionally well, who can actually perform even better when it gets to the Olympics. So this is opportunity rather than a setback if you choose to look at it. And if you're a, an athlete around the world, you should be looking at this going, you know, the good thing is, for, for me personally, is everybody's in the same boat. And it's not... Um, whether this is an advantage. The only advantage is, or the only advantage will be, if you adapt to this situation quicker than your opponent, quicker and better. And that's what the most, that's the, the key lesson from this, I think, for, for everybody. So by the time this ends, the question would be, um, it's kind of like, you know, there are a number of things, like and two really important lessons from the war, the old 
British war posters used to be, you know, your country needs you. Well, that's the lesson that nations who have not been under direct uh, threat of war in their own land are now experiencing because now your country needs you in the sense that you need to do your civic duty, which is stay, stay in place. And the second thing is, uh, used to be the, the other poster used to be, Daddy, what did you do during the war? Well, the question for a lot of athletes when this is all over is, what did you do during, you know, during the stay in place? Like, you I mean, how hard did you work? Um, you know, what, you know, how did you use that time? And it could be as simple as working on something that's not physical. Like this gives you a window of a few weeks to work on resilience or to work on flexibility. It could be something specific or non-specific. But that's, that's the question that as an athlete you have. And the last point on this is what catches most people in times like this is not doing anything. That's the worst thing you can do. You stand still, you're going to get run over. It's like you're crossing a road every day and you freeze in the middle of the road. You're going to get hit by one side or the other. So you can't stop. You have to create a new focus and start moving towards that. But why do people freeze? Because obviously you go back from a psychological sense of, uh, of uh, how we're high, hardwired and you go to the original sense. It was either fight or flight. Why has there become in more recent times that notion of the third one? of people obviously having no response whatsoever to either flee or to, to take up to fight. Why is there an instance of people who just freak out and just can't do anything? Yeah. So the, it was always there. There was always the third one freeze, but you would see it in nature more often because um, rarely were people put in situations where they were completely overwhelmed, where what they where their experience would be absolutely completely new. You see in young kids, something happens or they see a dog for the first time or an animal and they freeze, like they just they're they're frozen and and in some situations people are just completely overwhelmed. And what will happen? Um, you generally see um, the difference between. Uh, novices and experts are that um, a novice will freeze because they don't know, they don't have an option to deal with something. So if somebody's in an immature sense um, psychologically, um, they don't have an option, they don't have a tool to draw on to deal with the situation, context, or event that's happening. Um, an expert will get confused because they've got too many options. And so what that's in the sense, that's what tends to happen in when you freeze and it generally happens, you know, one of two ways. So the, the most important thing is to be able to digest, interpret exactly what's happening with clarity. Now, and the freeze can, can happen um, as a result of a number of factors, you know, it could be completely fatigued, could be um, being completely distracted by different things, but it's a case of identifying what the goal is and moving towards it, um, you know, quicker and that's why that ability to interpret stay cool uh, interpret and respond rather than just uh, react often is is the key thing so is there a sense of being proactive and in a sense trying to use probably a go-between and probably like intimate intermediate level in terms of you could make the right decision based on that situation versus I have a tendency a lot of times I've got better over the period of time of looking at it because you're either looking for perfection or you're procrastinating by having a multitude of uh, ideas in your head. And obviously people will know that 
you don't get anything done and you're juggling uh, using the, the, the Greek methodology here now of spinning too many plates, obviously you're going to smash loads. So in terms of probably from a, from a visual perspective for people listening, is it best to kind of be in the center ground to be able to, well, I'm not going to react in a certain way as a novice. I'm going to, I'm going to evaluate the best I can rationally and logically and then make a decision that's obviously going to put myself in the best position from a safety perspective. I think it's twofold. I think you you have to do something. Like, I mean, the worst thing to do is not do anything. So you have to move based on the information you have in the, be- in the best direction. And then as you evaluate it and as things become clearer, then you readjust. And you're constantly doing that anyway. Um, so... You, you have to move. So, for example, um, when this whole thing came down, you know, there were certain things that, okay, I had to sit down and look at it and go, okay, this is what appears to be happening. This is what I have to do. And then as it continues and you get more information, then you reevaluate, you readjust, and you, you head in a particular direction. Um, so, uh, for example, with me, there, there was work, there were projects that I had that suddenly were put on hold looking at it, I go, okay, well, I can't stand still and not do anything. There are these other projects that I, that I have that I can start work on. When those got canceled, well, then it was a case of, okay, I can go full steam ahead in, into these other things. I can um, take on or I can go to, you know, take on projects or clients that I had that had been speaking to me about different things. So um, that's an example of making a decision straight away. The worst thing I could have done is sat there put my thumbs and start to feel sorry for myself and go, what was me? Now, if you, and everybody faces setbacks, this, there is comfort in the fact that everybody's in this boat together. And that's why this, this idea of civic duty, particularly in the U S and some other countries where it's not alien, but it's not as common as for example, in Britain, like, I mean, it's, it is a while ago, you know, but, um, there's still our memories of, you know, for example, the Second World War when, you know, you have one common threat. Well, it just happens now that each country has this one common threat. And one of the key ways to overcome it is the idea of civic duty and the idea of uh, doing something that not just benefits you, but benefits everybody else. And it's an incredibly powerful um, feeling and emotion because, um when you feel isolated and you're dealing with a problem, that's worse than when you're in a community that, that are dealing with a common threat. And so I think those um, looking at it rationally, um, not getting caught up, emotion's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. But ensuring that it doesn't overpower rational decision-making is equally important and knowing when to rely on emotion and allowing emotion to um, protect you because the fear of this is a valid fear and it's very important. And so then being able to understand clearly what you can do, what you can't do, um, are, it's important to distinguish, but you can't make irrational decisions either. And so it's managing emotion and logical clinical decision-making. Those are the really important things that people need to look at. Um, and so like from a practical perspective, you know, you, there are things that you can't do. You have to look after your health. You have to look after it in a way that's going to help other people. All of these different things, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating time. I think it's a brilliant time for people in one sense because it allows them to, the, people will learn a huge amount during this period. 
But I think also, and, and be it from a performance standpoint, I think the general populace will be able to see a skill that probably majority of athletes take for granted, you know, visualization, being able to slow a sporting endeavor down in their mind. Uh, and some athletes are better than, than others because they are able to be, be it one step, two step, three steps, and possibly sometimes more than their opponent. And be it, I think through this learning process that you talk about, Fergus, I think through time and depending on the, 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 uh, longevity of how long person's been cooped up inside, or I look at it as not using it as a cage, but uh, something of being pr- productive in terms of your learning perspective, you could be tenfold that much better individual than you were at the start of it. I think, you know, like I said, athletes have a lot. It, we tend to, look back on it it depends <laughs> depends many athletes um don't dwell too much on their successes because they don't want to become too complacent and then there's some who do get carried away with that but they generally don't survive too long but we do tend to look at the outcomes and forget very quickly about the process we went through before and that means often we don't dwell on the qualities needed to overcome setbacks and that reflection is very, very important at times like this when it appears as though you're being overwhelmed. And there are many, many athletes that, you know, you sit down and you, you have to remind about the qualities that they relied on to get through difficult periods. Sometimes, like I said, they forget them, choose not to remember them, or instinctually go, um, that's not, you know, that they put them, they ignore them. But in truth, when you look back at any athlete's career, it's actually a litany of setbacks, not necessarily successes. There will always be more setbacks than successes. That's life. Um, but sometimes it's not about time or thing to remember about the qualities that were needed to overcome those setbacks. And many of the great players have been fortunate to be around or meet. When you talk to them, you know, they and you praise them in private, they become uncomfortable um, because they are, they don't want that complacency. They don't see it quite like that. They remember setbacks, but they some, but they sometimes refuse to recognize the qualities that they have that allow them to overcome those setbacks. I think I do fall into that, that, that component of people. Why, why do we have a tendency to do that then in terms of obviously the, the, the setback that you talk about, Fergus, is obviously a positive because if, if we didn't overcome the setback, obviously we wouldn't have the career or career that you currently have, depending on where you are in your current sporting endeavour. Why do we kind of gloss over? I know from, a, from an outward perspective, we have a tendency as human beings to focus on the negative. But why, from an athletic point of view, do I not want to, or I generalise here a little bit, athletes in general why do you have a tendency to to avoid that that scenario then because it's obviously a learning curve well i think it depends on the person so i think it it depends on the athlete it depends on the situation i think you know there are plenty of athletes who to survive have survived and i use that word lightly but they've survived simply through perseverance 
but early on in their career, they were told that they were never going to be good and a certain amount of stubbornness and survival that was needed. So I think they're uncomfortable with praise. Um, believe, like I mean, the public would find that hard to believe at times. Um, I think the athletes who have never had a lot of criticism, haven't had to deal with it, but struggle most periods like this because um, that resiliency hasn't been developed. So it, it, it is very personal and, and it's, you know, probably shouldn't tar everybody with the same brush. But um, I think a lot of athletes are very aware of the threat of complacency and hence choose not to look at successes in the same way. And in order to become driven, there's a certain amount of inherent um, dissatisfaction. You know, um, you can come off with, uh, leave the field with a trophy or an Olympic gold medal and feel that was my best performance or I was lucky to get that or come off a team game having won like a major title and go, I didn't play well, I know we won. And it, that's there's that constant dichotomy for uh, or paradox for a lot of team sport athletes in particular. Um, but even for individual athletes, you know, I won, but it wasn't my best performance or, you know, my technique wasn't good. I can get better. And so athletes use anything possible to motivate them. And very often it's uh, dissatisfaction with performance. So, but again, there, there is that little gap of that's the, those are the qualities that are needed in situations like this now where this is a so-called setback or a difficult moment that is not in a sporting context. It's in a life. Um, but recognizing those same qualities can be transferred to life is critical at this point in time. But if we go a step further than that, Fergus, in terms of, you know, that, 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 that detrimental aspect of looking at it, and I use the, the analogy that you use from a team perspective because it's slightly easier to, to make point of it, if the team plays well, but you as the individual don't and you focus on you not playing well, can that be detrimental in the long run? Because obviously you're, you're to certainly, um, from one point setting yourself up to fail, but also you're doing uh, yourself a disservice of critiquing yourself maybe too harshly in terms of looking at the bad overall sense of the game cannot be a detriment in the long run. Yeah. So it's two things. One is that very often athletes are inherently selfish, you know, for the large, they have to be because it means taking time away from family, taking time away from others. Like, I mean, so there's not all, and it varies to different degrees, but there is an element of selfishness um, or self absorption that's needed because there are times when you have to go train or, eat a particular food on Christmas Day or whatever it might be, or avoid whatever. There are things you can't go to. Um, it's discipline, it's selfishness, but um, at different points. And that can be dangerous in team sports if it becomes too much because now you're playing for yourself as opposed to your team. The second thing then is um, the the point that you're raising is that if you um, you know are not aware of your value as a person long-term, that can be detrimental. That's incredibly important. And you see a lot of athletes who struggle with that because they, it becomes a case of where their self-esteem eventually becomes more fragile over time because they don't see value. And that primarily comes about, and it's something that I spent a lot of time talking with people in many careers, but they view their identity 
as that of an athlete only. They don't view themselves as a person. They view themselves as an athlete. Therefore, they judge themselves on success or failure as an athlete, not as a person. And so um, recognizing, and uh, you, you see it with, with athletes who are, you see it at all levels, but particularly as athletes stay in the game longer and longer and longer, they can only identify as as an athlete. And they don't, they lose the sense of identity, which is a completely different thing, who you are, not what you do. And so your public image is, um, you know, what you do, your identity is who you are. And helping athletes identify both those things. Some of them, some people never do, but the smart ones or the better, no, I shouldn't say smart ones, those who have had certain experiences um, generally in, in their support system have a very clear recognition of the difference between image and identity. Um, they understand that they're two completely separate things. They understand that there's an external image that people will view them, but they recognize that they have um, um, an identity and are very clear about who they are, what their qualities are as a person and their value as a person. And when you know what that is and when you can recognize that, support it and develop it, then you tend to have a more uh, balanced, secure life. I'm choosing those words lightly, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's and that's one of the challenges that you see in a lot of athletes who um, struggle. Particularly, it happens at two key points uh, when they have a long-term injury or when they start to look at retirement. And obviously, at this particular moment now, Fergus, is it, and I'm going to single out, be it the athlete here, is it the, the, the issue of identity or image or public image be it as a role model that they struggle with now? Because obviously, there's not one sport anywhere in the world that is being performed. So be it, they've got to resort to social media, be it uh, Instagram, uh, TikTok has gained enormous amount of, pop, uh, of, of popularity now because it's an outlet to be able to be creative. But in that, in that sense, from the athlete perspective, what are they trying to do? Is it, they're trying to, to, to uh, and I know you can't generalize it because it's going to be case by case. Is it they're trying to uphill an identity as them as be it a footballer, basketball player, etc., or is it a public image of, from an outside perspective, looking in that this is your job, this is what I know you as, so you must entertain me. Um, I think what happens are in in some case well, there's there's two ways to look at it. One is that um, athletes coaches privately when your main medium of expression has been removed so you, there are things that you can't do now you some athletes will face confusion and they'll go okay i can't do what it is that i do which i identify as my my image um, like what i do they identify very clearly as who who i am but it's not what you do is not who you are that's your job, that's your profession, that's separate. Those athletes who have a clear separation and, and identify both of those clearly um, will not struggle as much because they recognize, I can't do what I normally do, but I still clearly know who I am because I'm more than just the sport. 
So there's that aspect to it. Athletes who, um, you know, are completely obsessed with, and that's the only thing that's been removed now, and they struggle. Athletes who look at it more rationally and go, okay, I can't temporarily do what I always do, but I've got other ways around it. I'll keep driven. They'll, they'll be fine. Um, but athletes who are just completely, you know, focused on doing this one thing or whatever it is, whether, I, I, you know, but there's always ways around it. There's that. The, the image, the idea of social media is part of that or can be part of that. But what tends to happen to some athletes are that they become more um, aware of how they're viewed in social media. And that, be, that creates a disconnect because now they tend to identify who they are as um, how they're represented on social media. So mm-hmm. they can sometimes confuse their identity, who they are, with what people perceive their image to be. And so if you have created, like, I mean, we all have images, like, I mean, in the sense that it doesn't matter whether I want an image or not, uh, people who don't know you will watch you on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is, and go, I have an image of them. And then people can like it and they can give feedback. So the image that's being created now has a value to the person. The problem is when you start to put, put value yourself in that image that you've created. And now, you know, the number of likes and whatever becomes something that you get a response from. Like a, you get a, a feeling of, you know, a dopamine hit or whatever it might be from the number of likes you get. But the important thing to remember is that's just an external image. Who cares? But a lot of people do because sometimes that's their only way of getting uh, gratification or response or feeling cared for, loved, whatever it might be. But the reality is that's just an image. Nobody, nobody cares. But athletes who identify, who struggle to separate their public image on social media from their identity, they would struggle quite a bit because now if the number of likes goes up or down or whatever, you know, that's what they live for. The reality is who cares? Because the same people who are going to criticize you for your performance on the field are going to criticize you on social media. And at the end of the day, you don't know most of them anyway. So does it, does it matter? Like, I mean, but to, to some people it is important. But, you know, that's, it's being able to separate and clearly identify what these things are and what they're not. But is that in this time of un, un, uncertainty, and come back to our original point and, and in, at the initial start of the conversation, obviously the control and uncontrol, we, can't, we don't know how long this is going to last. Obviously, when this goes out, it could be finished. It could, so uh, the, the uncertainty that we talk about we're never like you said all along. You're never really in control from one minute. To the yeah, minute. and correct. So we we've created, um, you know, in modern society, we've created a sense of security in um, feeling that we're in control. We're not really in control. You know what I mean? Not truly. We prepare very well, and we prepare very well. And we increase the probability of success, which is what you should do. But recognizing that even with all the best preparation, you may not be truly ever in control of things. And so you've no control over what people think of you. You've no control over, you know, your reputation. You've control over how you respond to things and you can influence your character and how you think. But truthfully, what other people choose to think of you, you've no control over. In fact, even in relationships, you don't. And so that's where you see people who enter into relationships end up in situations where 
they um, and codependency and they're because they're not essentially very often secure in their own understanding of who they are. And that's, you know, so, you know, lots of people have been in situations where people feel dependent on others um, or vice versa. But that first of all comes with being knowing who you are and being secure in yourself, which is why the word, why, why, you know, I refer back to the, the concept of authenticity so often because one needs to be, um, you know, uh, authentically aware of who they are, their strengths and weaknesses, so that they can move forward. But if you're not truly aware of what your limitations are, that, that can create issues in relationships as well as in social media, because essentially social media is somewhat of an extension of this. It's a relationship with this, you know, entity, the public or the interweb or whatever you want to call it that is whatever. But at the end of the day, you must be secure in knowing who you are, authentically aware of yourself. Do you think because we live in a kind of fast-paced society, that's become more problematic because people are less inclined, and I'm going to generalize this loosely because for some people listening, it might not be the case, uh, that obviously with the fast pace that we live, you're more likely to gloss over the fact when you, when you do either learn from adversity or face adversity because we we kind of have that safety blanket or safety net. Whereas now we don't have a sense of security. Obviously what you mentioned earlier on Fergus of public duty, that this is something greater than oneself. And this is a sense that you need to put your ego aside and, and whatever things that you were doing in, in, in normality and whatever normality in life is I use loosely in terms of normal can go because uh, as you and I know sport months ago with the six nations of Wales possibly playing Scotland and you're thinking well the game has no meaning there's there's no point to it all the other the other two fixtures have been cancelled and we will we'll, we'll hopefully be played in the autumn so why put 80,000 people plus the players the staff at risk for sport because ultimately, yes, I've done sport for 20 something years plus. I saw the rationale. What's sport is no, 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 no important in life. And I think it, it does put it to the fore that you need to value of the less vulnerable in society over yourself. Just, just cause you're fit and healthy doesn't mean you are, and athletes probably do think they have this sense of uh, um, either unvulnerable or in, in, invincibility. Well, this this pandemic doesn't care. It doesn't care if you you're Superman or the co- common common person in the street. It's I think we do need to take that sense of probably go back a couple of centuries of of caring for other people. Um, a community spirit that I think in some cases has been lost. I think it's starting to, uh, and also the, the positive of being in social isolation, this give you a chance to actually slow down your life and reflect and actually learn from, do I truly, like you say, am I uh, exuberating myself 
exponentially outwards to get gratification for other people or am I truly, truly content with myself? So the, the fast paced life um, or lifestyle or society doesn't offer people many opportunities to reflect or to take time to themselves and to become aware of. And, you know, I think, you know, any athlete who's, um, suddenly gone from training, you know, uh, you know, all available hours and being busy to suddenly sitting at home was going to struggle. And, um, you know, I think if people watch my TED talk, they'll see, you know, how that hit me in, uh, you know, a number of years ago when I was faced with a similar situation and I, I, I didn't handle it well because I wasn't used to not having anything to do in the confusion that comes with that. So that's why it's important for people to, um, you know, have a good support team, but also to be aware of um, themselves and to recognize that being busy all the time is abnormal, having time, having a balance. And so I think one of the things that's going to come out of this are that people will, you know, initially it's a huge disruption. People are going to be um, like, an, so for the first week or so, people are going to go, okay, there's a little bit of fun. I can hide out again, you know, walk around all day in my sweatsuit or tracksuit, whatever, and I don't have to worry. I can lie in bed. By the second week, people are starting to get a little bit anxious. And by the third week, people are slowly starting to crack up. Um, on, unless they come to an acceptance of the situation they're, they're in. But I think that, you know, when this does die down, I think one of the things that we started the conversation at the beginning about this was people have a better word in specific duty. I think people will understand the value of having more quiet time. And I think that there will, hopefully people will recognize that there's a lot of benefit to having a balance between moments of, of pace and then moments of solitude because it allows you to be more aware of who you are and to be more aware of what's happening around you. And I think that's, you know, that it, those are some of the benefits that are going to come out of this, you know, situation. So my final question to you, Fergus, before we wrap up the episode, then so if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Always look for the opportunity in times of difficulty. So once again, Fergus, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Awesome. Delighted. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Have a great day and take care of yourself, okay? You too. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Fergus and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging me over on Instagram at jamesoroberts11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And if you had any questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to check out Fergus's website, fergusconnolly.com, where you can find his two new books as well as additional resources. Uh, the book Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science, and 59 Lessons Working with the World's Greatest Coaches, Athletes, and Special Forces, and the additional resources the Happiness Handbook for High Achievers, Stoic, Circles, Sheepdogs, and Authenticity. And not forgetting, don't forget to check out my free content on my website, fitamputee.co.uk, and click on the tab Resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new group, especially for this podcast, which you can find by typing The Mindset Athlete. And one, especially for the amputees listening, I've recently created a Facebook group called The Amputee Coach, Fitness and nutrition for amputees to help you lose 
10 to 30 pounds. So make sure to check those those out. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.